Good evening and welcome to the Joe Beam Show, dealing with guilt. So what good is guilt anyway? Let's think about it for a while. You see, guilt in the emotional slash spiritual realm accomplishes basically the same thing that pain does in the physical realm. Let me see if I can make that make some sense. If we couldn't feel physical pain, we'd be in trouble. For example, if you had no ability to feel physical pain and you sat down on a hot stove, you would cook. You wouldn't know to get up. You wouldn't know that something's wrong here. I've got to fix it. And so pain basically says something's wrong. Fix it. Now, what about pain that is continual? It never, ever stops. Well, that kind of pain is debilitating. There are people who, because of injuries, uh, for example, maybe somebody's been shot in the spine or, or somebody's had an accident and, and some terrible things happen or even some great disease has occurred, and this person feels pain constantly and incessantly. Pain that's actually designed for a good thing to tell us something's wrong, fix it, now is out of control, and what it does is it completely debilitates, debilitates the person. He or she really cannot function because of the tremendous pain. If you don't believe that, those of you who've had migraine headaches, just think about how debilitating that is while it lasts. Now, think about guilt and the spiritual realm doing the same kind of things. Or if you don't want to talk about spiritual, talk about emotional. That guilt and the emotional realm will do the same thing. Basically, what it says is something's wrong, fix it. And that's a good thing. People who feel no guilt are people we typically refer to as being psychopaths. People who really don't understand that they have culpability, responsibilities. They feel no remorse. They have no conscience. We refer to them as psychopaths, sometimes sociopaths. Some people make a differentiation between the two. Others don't. But we know that feeling guilt is important for us to function as a human being because it means we have a conscience, and it's saying to us something's wrong. Fix it. But think about guilt that's unending. It just goes on and on. Just like physical pain will debilitate a person if it's incessant, guilt will debilitate a person if it is incessant. So while it's a good thing that we can feel guilt, it's a bad thing if that guilt goes on forever and ever and ever, or at least even for a long period of time, because it will just basically shut us down. If you have struggled with guilt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It can lead to depression. It can lead to a morose view of life. It can lead to you avoiding other people. It can lead to you sometimes thinking that you have no right to be forgiven. And it can lead you to sometimes even think that you have no right to live. Now, that's a terrible thing. So this thing called guilt, it's good. We're glad we have it. But it's bad if you don't let it do what it's designed to do. And that is to motivate you to say, here's a problem. Something's wrong. Let's fix this thing. Now, during this program, we're going to be talking about that. How do you overcome guilt? We're going to be talking about how you can overcome guilt if it's your guilt that you feel for something that you have done wrong. We're also going to be talking about how you can help other people that you care about and love deal with their guilt if they feel guilty about what they've done wrong. Let me start, though, a little bit differently than that. Several years ago, I was talking to a gentleman, and by the way, you can read this story in greater detail than I'll give it here in my book called Getting Past Guilt. If you have gone to marriageradio.com to listen to this program, you'll see a link there where you can actually go, I guess it's a link to Amazon, where you can actually go and buy the book Getting Past Guilt. Or if you are not listening by that, but by your phone, you might want to jot it down, and you can go to amazon.com, and you can buy that book Getting Past 
Guilt by Joe Beam. Let me tell you what the book is about, and then we're going to explain it more here. Hopefully, you can get what you need here, but I'm just telling you there's a whole lot more there if you want it. I actually wrote that book after I had come back to Alice, my wife, after having been divorced from her for three years. I left Alice because of an illicit relationship that I was in. I divorced my wife to be with the other person. Interestingly, I felt little guilt then. As a matter of fact, by the time I finally divorced Alice, I felt no guilt at all. And I went on for years, three years later before I asked her if she would take me back. And in that period of time, I didn't deal with much guilt, if any, either. But finally, I did. That's why I finally wrote the book when we got back together. The first book I wrote was called Seeing the Unseen, which is about are there other forces at work that somehow help us make the decisions that we make. Then I wrote The Beginning Past Guilt, helping me to understand, is there a way for me now to get past the guilt that I feel now? I didn't feel the guilt when I divorced Alice. I didn't feel the guilt for the three years I lived apart from Alice, but I started feeling the guilt after we started getting back together. And when we remarried, that's when the guilt hit me. And so I was about to tell you a story that's in the book, and you can read it in much greater detail in the book than I'll tell you here, about a man who was a very detailed, analytical, calculating kind of person, the kind of guy that you think operates totally by logic. Yet he had become enamored of one of his clients and in that process fell into, well, a state that we often refer to on this program as limerence. It's an intense emotional state to the point where that people will give up anything and everything to be with that limerent object, that person that he or she is so madly in love with. And he did that, even though he knew it was hurting his wife, even though his children who were grown were telling him, if you do this, we're not going to have anything to do with you. It'll be over. It's done. And indeed, they kept their word. They didn't have anything to do with him after that. His church just excommunicated him. I mean, all kinds of things happened, all kinds of negative consequences. He went ahead and married the other woman. And three years into that marriage, he finally divorced her. Because most of those marriages, if they ever happen, you know, just when I say if they ever happen, because quite often when a person leaves for an LO, a limerent object, somebody they feel they're madly in love with, when they leave one marriage to go be with that other person, quite often they never marry that other person, even though they think they're going to. And if they do marry the other person, then the likelihood of that failing is well over 80%. And in the third year of that marriage to her, he lasted longer than most, by the way, in that third year, he divorced her, and that's when he asked me this question. I feel so guilty, he said, about everything that I did, all the pain that I've caused to my wife, to my children, to my children's children, even though they were very young at the time. The pain I've caused to my friends, the pain I've caused to my church, etc. Why do I feel guilty now? And I didn't feel guilty when I got involved with that woman and started committing adultery. That's the word he actually used, other than the nicer word affair. So why didn't I feel guilty then? Why didn't I feel guilty when I finally divorced my wife? Why didn't I feel guilty when I stood in front of a justice of the peace and married the other woman? Why didn't I feel guilty until now? Well, to understand that, let's talk about guilt a little more. Actually, there are two kinds of guilt. Now, you could probably say more, but this is the way I'm going to explain it, and it's the way I explained it in the book, Getting Past Guilt. There's a legal guilt. Now, legal guilt is whether or not you have actually violated a law or a precept. 
So, for example, if I'm driving down the highway and I'm driving five miles an hour of the speed limit, I have legal guilt whether I get caught or not. And if I am caught, then I'm going to get a ticket if the if the trooper or policeman so desires to give one for that speed of just being five miles an hour over. It's legal guilt. You violate the law, and therefore there is guilt that is incurred from that. But it's not just the law of the land. When you think about legal guilt, it actually goes beyond that. For example, if you're a religious person, then you would bring into that the law of God. For example, if you're a Christian, you say, okay, in addition to the laws of land, which can create legal guilt, what are the laws of God that create legal guilt? Like, for example, a man that was talking to me that I just referred to a minute ago was saying I committed adultery. And because he had been a Christian, he knew the Ten Commandments. And one of those was thou shalt not commit adultery. And so while what he had done might not have been illegal in the sense of the law of the land, a violation or contradiction or breaking of the law of the land, it was, by his religious beliefs and values, definitely a legal violation. And therefore, there was legal guilt incurred. If a person also has certain standards by which he or she lives, even if those standards are not the law of the land, even if they're not part of your religion, but they're part of the culture in which you live, for example. Like if you're the kind of person who says, okay, I, I never abandon a friend. I stand with them through thick and thin. And then you abandon a friend who is in trouble. You will incur legal guilt, at least in the sense of what you believe you should do. And so when you start looking up legal guilt, yes, there's a law of the land. There is the law of God. There is the law of morals involved here, which involve your belief and values that maybe even go beyond your religion. Things that you ex uh, understand other people expect of you. So, for example, when I divorced Alice, we had two children. I legally divorced her, although it was against my religious beliefs and values, which incurred legal guilt for me religiously, though not in the law of the land. And by my belief and value system of what I should have been as a father, I violated that law as well, if you'll let me call that a legal thing, part of my own belief and value system. Yet, even though I was violating the law of God that I understood and the law of being a husband and father that I understood, I did not feel any guilt. So legally guilty by the very things I believed, but not feeling guilt. And that's the second kind of guilt. And that's personal guilt. Personal guilt is when I actually feel guilty. And so if I'm doing something that's against the law of the land, but I don't feel guilty, then I'm not aware of that guilt. I may be consciously or intellectually aware of it, but I'm not consciously. In other words, it's not touching my heart. It's not making me feel badly. As a matter of fact, I even find some way to justify it. For example, there are people, the men, I think was one of them that I was just talking about, that when they finally get involved with the person that leaves them out of the marriage would actually say, oh, no, this is not violating the will of God. Because God wants me to be happy. And since I know God wants me to be happy, then I have no legal guilt before God because this is making me happy. Yet, down within themselves, they may know that that's nothing but a rationalization when it comes to the religion. They may know enough about their Bible, for example, to know there's no passage anywhere that God says, you just do what makes you happy. That they would know that he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, that the marriage bed should be undefiled. And so they would know that, but they would deny that by saying, no, there's no legal guilt. Because now they've twisted it around, they modified it so they don't feel guilt at all. 
And so maybe do it this way. If you've got a piece of paper in front of you, you can actually draw this. If not, hopefully I can describe it well enough you can draw it in your mind. But let's make a whole quadrant model. So you draw one horizontal line and then a perpendicular line bisecting it. So you've got uh, the, you know, the famous plus sign looking thing that we create four quadrant models from. At the very top, above that perpendicular line, write the words legal guilt. And then at the very bottom, right below that perpendicular line, write no legal guilt. Now go over to the left-hand side of that horizontal line and write personal guilt. Then go over to the right, to the far right of that same horizontal line and write no personal guilt. Now that is going to give us the way to figure these four quadrants. And so let's say then that a person is in that top right-hand quadrant where they actually are legally guilty but they feel no personal guilt. Because when we talk about personal guilt, we're talking about what a person acknowledges about him or herself and therefore what he or she feels about him or herself. And so if a person is violating the law, whether it's the law of God, the law of the land, their own personal moral standards, if they're violating the law, but they don't feel guilty, and that quadrant, write the word deceived. Now, you can read more about this in the book, Getting Past Guilt, if you wish, but deceived, what does that mean? It means that I'm not feeling any pain. And we're talking about emotional pain now, which comes with guilt. I'm not feeling any guilt, even though I know I'm violating the law. And I I have had to do something to deceive myself. Now, that's where I was when I left Alice for another person and divorced her. That's where this man was when he left his wife and children, divorced them or divorced his wife knowing that it was going to cost him a relationship with his children, knowing that his church was going to react badly, knowing that his friends were all going to not be his friends anymore because they were mostly all his church friends. He deceived himself into thinking everything is going to be okay, even though he knew, he knew that he was violating the legal standards. Now, again, not by the laws of the land, but for him, the laws of God, that mattered to him. If he had not been a Christian, had not been religious, then that wouldn't have bothered him. But it was still violating his own morals and beliefs about, I made a promise that I would live with you for a lifetime, and now I'm leaving you for somebody else. And so we called it deceived. Now, if you move one over to the left, at that top left-hand quadrant, where it's legal guilt and personal guilt, that's where you're saying, okay, I know. I know that I'm doing the wrong thing, and I feel pain because of that. And that's what I call aware. And that's when you're in that situation where, you know, I've done the wrong thing. I feel guilty about it. Something's got to be done. Now go to the bottom right-hand quadrant over there where it says no personal guilt and no legal guilt. That means that not only have I gotten my guilt resolved, but I've resolved my guilt to the point where I don't feel pain over it anymore. I don't feel guilty over it anymore. Write the word healed there because that's what you are. You, you have done what you need to resolve the matter of guilt, and now you don't feel guilty anymore. Healed, that's where you want to go. But that leaves that bottom left-hand quadrant. That's where a person feels personal guilt, but no legal guilt. What I mean by that is a person straightened up. He or she's no longer violating the laws, either the laws of the land or the law of God, your own laws of morality, societal expectations, those kinds of things. You're not doing anything wrong anymore, but you still feel guilty. That's where I put the words guilt caged. Guilt caged? Yes, because that's exactly what those people are. They are living in a cage of guilt. The guilt does not actually exist in reality outside of themselves anymore, but the guilt still exists within them, and that's extremely real, and those people are basically just shut 
down. They'll do the kind of things I was talking about earlier where they just get totally down on themselves. They may get depressed, even to the point of being clinically depressed. They may shun other people, staying away from other people, thinking I just can't stand to face other people because of what I've done. They may actually wind up trying to punish themselves, either by doing things consciously that bring negative consequences into their lives because they think they deserve it, or doing things subconsciously that bring negative things into their lives because they think they deserve it. Things such as um, drinking too much, not realizing that the reason they're doing this is because of the fact that they really are at first trying to numb themselves, but secondly, also trying to somehow harm themselves. And so they start doing things that are more dangerous, like drinking way too much or eating all the wrong kinds of food. Yeah, I'm talking about that but being motivated by the fact that they really think they deserve to be punished or by sabotaging themselves at work. So they wind up getting fired or by doing the wrong things in relationships, but they're actually subconsciously making those things happen so that people actually do move away from them. And the guilt caged people are people that typically wind up alone. And when other people try to tell them, I forgive you, they tend not to accept that. And rather than coming to do the things to straighten up what they've done wrong, they just go into this funk <laughs> that takes over their lives and controls them and just bad things happen after that. So which are you? If you have dealt with guilt in your life, are you deceived? In other words, are you a person who's doing something wrong right now? You know it's against either the law of the land or the law of God, if you believe in God, or your own morals and values, or the societal expectations. In other words, you know that what you're doing is wrong, and yet you feel no guilt. And the reason you feel no guilt is because you've convinced yourself that it's okay to do what you're doing, that people should understand you deserve to be happy, whatever else. If you're in that quadrant, let's just call you deceived. Or, and I would hope this would be your case, that you have come to grips with what you have done wrong, that you have done what you needed to do to resolve the guilt, and that having done that, you now within yourself don't feel that great burden anymore, and you are healed. I am. Over the things I did about my wife and my children and my church family and all those other people I hurt back in the day when I did all those terrible things, I am at this point and have been for many years healed. I know what I did was wrong, but I have resolved that. And I feel no guilt within. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody else will forgive you. You can be healed even if other people don't forgive you occasionally. And believe it or not, it still happens occasionally. I'll run into somebody somewhere who'll say something like, hey, I know who you are. Do you know how many people you hurt back in those days when you did those things? Well, no, I really don't know how many people I'm hurt. Uh, I'm sure it's quite a few, but thank you for reminding me of that. But here, this is what you need to understand. I'm forgiven. I'm healed. My guilt is gone. Now, if you want to worry with it, if you want to have that pain and agony, feel free to take it, but I'm not taking it back. I am healed. It's over and it's done. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm callous, nor does it mean that I'm taking the responsibility for my actions, but it means that I am healed. I hope that's where you are emotionally, spiritually healed. Or, or maybe you're that person in that top left-hand quadrant and you know that you're doing wrong and you feel guilt about it. Now let's talk about that for a while before we go to that other quadrant and get to the meat of what we want to talk about for tonight. Let's say you're aware that what you're doing is wrong and you feel guilty about it. 
it probably is too simplistic to say it this way, but do you not understand that the first thing you should do is to stop doing what's wrong? Several years ago, a lady would come to me talking all the time about all of her pain over her affair, et cetera, et cetera. I was a very, very young man back then. I didn't know nearly as much as I know now, and I'm quite sure that sometimes I probably was not only not helpful, sometimes I probably even was harmful because of my ignorance, not knowing what to do or how to act about things. But I remember in her talking about it, she said to me, I've been talking to my minister, and he listens with me, and he cries with me, and, and he is the most compassionate and understanding man. But then I ran into this other minister the other day, and I started talking to him, and he, he was so rude, he looked at me and said, so why don't you stop? And so she started lamenting about how rude and crude he was, that he would be so arrogant as to tell her that if she's feeling guilty about what she does, because she knows what she's doing is wrong, she should stop. Well, I'm on his side. Stop. Now, I realize that is easier said than done, and sometimes you need help. I used to drink a lot. This was even after we got into our second marriage with each other. The way I deal with pressure and strain is that I would drink a lot, and, and I, don't, I can't begin to tell you how many times I said to myself, I can stop anytime I want. I know I can. <laughs> I know I could because I'd stopped a thousand times. In other words, I couldn't stop. Oh, I could stop for a period, but then they'd go right back to it the next time the trigger came along. When people have an addiction, like drinking or whatever the addiction might be, addiction might be, they're typically things that are triggers that send you right back to it. And whenever the next trigger would happen, boom, there you go right back to it. I needed help. I needed somebody else to help me. And so I'm very, very prone to suggest to people, okay, if it's a thing that you are not able to stop or you feel like you're unable to stop, then you go find the people who can help you stop it. If it's drinking, you go to AA. If it's uh, sexual compulsivity, then you go to SA, Sexaholics Anonymous. If it's drugs, you go to NA, Narcotics Anonymous. For people who prefer the religious version, there's um, Celebrate Recovery. A lot of churches have those. And you find the help that you need. And if there's not a 12-step group out there that's in existence to help you with what it is that you need to stop, find somebody somehow, somewhere that'll help you do that. I was in a church in Montgomery, Alabama several years ago visiting. The preacher's name there is Buddy Bell. It's a church, the landmark church in Montgomery, Alabama, an amazing man, one of the greatest men on the planet as far as I'm concerned. And that day at the end of his sermon, a fellow came to the front and took the microphone and said to the whole church, I am struggling with pornography. I don't know how to stop. I'm sitting in the audience as a visitor thinking, oh, my goodness, he'll be talked about badly the rest of this day. Except my friend, Buddy Bell, who was a minister of that church, took the microphone from him and said, would all the men in this audience who are willing to help who have had problems with pornography but have overcome, come to the front right now and surround this man and men begin to get up from all over that auditorium? <laughs> it must have been 20 or 30. Of course, you know, maybe 15 or 1,600 in the audience. So 20 or 30 come down and surround this guy. And now everybody in the church sees who they are. And I'm thinking, well, who are they going to talk about now? And then Buddy turned and talked to those 20 or 30 guys and said, okay, you work out a plan. You help him. You guys call him to accountability. You be there for him. You help him stop. And so if you can't stop on your own, you find somebody who will help you stop. 
many years ago, back before the internet, a minister came to me and told me he'd been going to uh, these uh, porn stores where you drop quarters into a machine and waste like five minutes of pornography and then another quarter for another five minutes, those kinds of things. Again, pre-internet days. He came to tell me about it and I was tearing him apart how guilty he felt. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And he said, I'll do anything to stop anything. I said, well, tell your wife. He said, she'll kill me. I said, that'll, that'll stop you. <laughs> He did tell his wife, and they worked together, and they got past it. So if you're aware, find the right kind of help. Now, let's go to the next one. Let's say that you have stopped whatever it is that you have been doing. What comes next so you don't wind up guilt case, that bottom left-hand quadrant? So that even, even though you are no longer violating the law, whether it's the law of the land, the law of God, your own moral code, social expectations, whatever is important to you, you're no longer doing that wrong thing, but you still feel guilty. What do you do now? Well, let me tell you some things that are good to do, but that in and of themselves aren't going to fix it. But they're still good to do. One's restitution. If you've stolen somebody's money, you make arrangements to get that money back. Anything you can make up for, you do. Now, that's not always possible. There are many things in this world you can't make restitution for. But if you can, do it. If you stole their money, like I said, give them the money back. If you, if you um, did something that messed up their yard, you go and cut their grass and do their landscaping for them. You do whatever you can to make restitution. Understanding that's a good thing to do because it's a good path for you to be on. As a matter of fact, I'd even say it's really important to do. But in and of itself, it's not going to make you feel a lack of guilt. Restitution by itself won't do that because sometimes people just try to, uh, yeah, I'll be good enough to make up for how bad I was. I'll do so many good things that I won't feel bad about the bad thing. And that balancing act is awfully, awfully difficult to achieve. Another thing is contrition. And that's when you feel badly about what you've done. And I think that's a really good thing. I think it's a good thing for people to feel badly about what they've done. Sociopaths and psychopaths aren't going to do that. So if you feel bad about what you did, I think that's a good thing. Sometimes you do need to weep and mourn your sin, if you'll allow me to use that word. There's a story in the Bible where that this woman who was a town sinner came to a dinner party where Jesus was. She was so much into contrition, the pain she felt over her own sin, that she wept bitterly, sobbing, creating enough tears to actually wash Jesus' feet. And then after that, drying those feet with her hair which, by the way, it's something that no Jewish woman would ever do in public, is take her hair down. It was considered to be immodest. But this woman was so focused on, on Jesus, it was as if nobody else was there. So contrition is a good thing. Feeling bad about what you did, that's great. It, it, crying over your sin, yeah, that's perfectly acceptable. As a matter of fact, I think it's actually very beneficial for you to feel the pain of what you've done. That woman, for example, the one I just talked about, Jesus let her cry and cry and cry before he ever said to her, your sins are forgiven. I think it was a reason for that. He let her cry because he knew she just needed to get it out. She needed to feel that pain. And he let her before he told her he forgave her. And so contrition is a good thing, but it, and of itself, it's not going to fix things. Then there's a thing called confession. Confession can be extremely powerful when you go to a person and say, this is what I did to you. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. 
Now, I suggest that if you're going to make confession that you listen to the program from last week because there are sometimes, there are some occasions when you actually do more harm with your confession than good, not just to you, but to other people. And so I suggest you go listen to last week's program where we talked about should you always tell. And after you listen to that and understand the principles and realize that when it is right, when it's appropriate, you confess. And if you're going to confess, may I suggest a couple of things. Don't, don't use wimpy words like, wow, I made a mistake. A mistake's when you hit the wrong key on the keyboard. Most of the things we do wrong, we did not do accidentally. Most of the things we do wrong, we did on purpose. Therefore, it's not a mistake. I think mistake's a wimpy word. In my opinion, it's a way to weasel out of responsibility. Rather than doing that, you take responsibility. I did this, and it was wrong. I have no excuse. And then I don't even use the word apologize. I think that's too wimpy a word myself. I ask people, will you please forgive me? Confession is extremely powerful. It takes a lot of courage to go face-to-face with people that you've hurt. That in and of itself is not going to get you past the feeling of guilt either. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is sometimes those people are not going to forgive you. Sometimes, no matter how clearly you express your, your sadness over what you've done and asking for their forgiveness, they're going to look at you and go, no. No, 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 I'll never forgive you. I've actually had people tell me that. I will never forgive you for what you've done. You can never do anything to make it up to me, meaning restitution won't work. I don't care how badly you feel about it, meaning contrition doesn't touch them either. I'm never going to forgive you. And therefore, confession is a powerful and a very strong thing to do and a good thing to do in the right situations. It in and of itself will not bring you past it either. So what do you finally do? When you know that you have stopped, understand, oh, and I need to put this in here because sometimes people get confused over this. Sometimes people, after they've stopped doing whatever it is they've done, still continue to feel guilty because sometimes they find themselves still wanting to do it. For example, those years of carousing and running around and drinking and being a wild man while we were divorced, uh, after Alice and I remarried, I confessed those things to her. She wanted to ask a lot of questions about those things. And then every once in a while, after, you know, we'd married four, five, six years, something like that, every once in a while, out of the clear blue, and it didn't happen every month. It didn't happen every year. But occasionally she'd look at me and say something like, do you ever miss it? Oh, do I miss the fact that I can be drunk in an hour? Do I miss the fact that I can abdicate all responsibility for anything in life and go just have a wild and woolly life if I want to? Do I miss the fact that even though I'm not a handsome, not, I am not a handsome man, I learned how I could get female companionship in those bars. And I'm not talking about prostitutes either. Do I ever think, okay, I can go live that wild and woolly lifestyle, drink, be carefree, have no pain, no worries. Do I ever, ever think that maybe I want to do that again? Yes, there's a part of me that says he I would like to do that again because you see the day <laughs> the day would tell her, no, 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 that would never have any appeal to me ever again. She would start worrying whether or not I was being truthful with her. Hmm. You say, but wait a minute, you, you still wanted to do some of those things. The fact that it was attractive to me enough to get me to do it to begin with, meant that there were some residual parts of it that I still found attractive. And when Alice would say to me, so why don't you? That's when I'd say it costs too much. It would cost me my relationship with you. It would cost me the kind of relationship I have with my God. It would cost me the relationship I have with my children. It would cost me my own self-respect. 
It just costs too much. I'm not going to do it. Now, are there things I've done wrong that I have absolutely no desire to do again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. But there are some things that I did wrong that is a part of me that would probably still like to do it again. And here's what I had to learn, and I hope you learn for you, and that's this. The fact that you occasionally find yourself desiring, thinking, wow, I'd like to do that again, does not mean that you haven't repented. Now, I haven't used that word before, so let me explain it very quickly now. Repent basically is a decision. I've decided I'm not going to do that anymore. That's basically what repentance is. I have decided not to do that anymore. That does not necessarily make the desire go away. And so, for example, if a person was involved with somebody else and came back to his wife or her husband and said, I'm ending that relationship, I want to work out the marriage, if you were to ask them honestly, tell me right now, do you still have some desire to be with that other person? The honest answer would be yes. But what you focus on rather than that is the decision that has been made, the path that has been chosen, the future that's going to come. And that, I hope you understand that if you still feel guilty because you find yourself sometimes still thinking you'd like to do the other thing, accept the fact that that's part of humanity, but you make the decision to walk the right path. Oh, or if, if you have an occasional slip. Now, I'm not trying to justify that you every once in a while get to go do something bad just so you can feel better. I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes these things can have quite a hold on us, quite a hold on us. And sometimes people do slip. Let me tell you what would happen in an AA group if you went and started drinking again and you call your sponsor and said, can you help me? He or she would not throw you out of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) They wouldn't do it. They'd come help you. And if they needed other people, they'd bring them to help you too. Because they understand that sometimes, just sometimes, we wind up doing stupid stuff all over again. And but for the grace of God, there go I. And so don't give up if you happen to slip somewhere along the line. Just get back up, make that decision again to do what's right, and go in that direction. Now, if you've stopped doing it, you're headed in the right direction, even though you may still occasionally want to, even though there might have been a slip somewhere along the way. If you're headed in the right direction, then you need to accept these things if you want to get past feeling guilt. Number one, accept that you did what you did. That means you don't try to rationalize it. You don't try to explain it away. You don't try to blame it on anybody else. You take full responsibility in and of yourself for what you have done. That is crucial. If you want to get past guilt, you take responsibility for what you have done without blaming it on anybody. I don't care who it is. You take responsibility for your actions and you accept how others react. What that means is if some don't forgive you, you accept the fact that that's just the way it's going to be and you can't change it. But on the other hand, if people do forgive you, that you accept that. Now, sometimes that's hard to do. And sometimes the reason it's hard to accept is because we're wondering, I don't know if I could forgive me if I were you. You know, I I heard a a minister on television many years ago, one of these televangelists, and I'm not particularly fans of televangelists, but this guy's good. He's really good. And he was saying, maybe the reason we have such trouble believing that others can forgive us and even trouble believing that God can forgive us is because of the fact that we have not forgiven other people. And because we haven't forgiven other people, we find it difficult to believe anybody can forgive us. And so in the process of finding this healing, you need to forgive all the people who have hurt you, all the people 
who have hurt you all the way back to childhood. It goes that far. Anybody, everybody, whether it was your mom, your dad, your third grade teacher, your uncle that molested you, whoever it is. Now, forgiving them does not set them free from the consequences of their behavior. Forgiving them is a decision you make that you're not going to take vengeance on them and that you will treat them as if they have value as a human being. They may not be your best friends. Now, so you forgive other people. And when other people don't forgive you, you accept that's just the way it is and you can't change it and you don't let yourself go worrying about it anymore. And if people do forgive you, if they look you in the eye and say, I forgive you, that you believe them. You accept what they're saying is true. Even if you can imagine how they can, even if you can't have the, any comprehension of why in the world they would do that, that you within you accept the fact they have the right to forgive you if they choose to. And if they do, you accept it. You accept that they're telling you the truth, accept their forgiveness. Even when you don't think you can, can possibly understand why. And then you forgive you. Basically what that means is that you look at within yourself and say, I'm not going to hold this against me. I'm not going to beat myself up about this for the rest of my life. What I did I shouldn't have done what I did caused pain to others and to me, but I've taken full responsibility for that. I've accepted that. I'm not blaming it on anybody else. I'm accepting forgiveness from those who give it to me. I'm accepting the fact that some won't, but I'm also accepting myself that what is done is done. It's over. I'm headed a new path. I will not do it perfectly, but I'm heading a new path and I will accept that. And if you're religious, Particularly if you're a Christian, I don't know about how all the other religions work, but particularly if you're a Christian, you accept the forgiveness of God. Did you hear me? You accept the forgiveness of God. What that means is you don't keep calling God back. That's what we do when we're praying. God, can you forgive me? God, can you forgive me? God, can you forgive me? God, please forgive me. I think sometimes what God's thinking is, would you quit bringing it up? I've already forgiven you. Why don't you believe I tell you the truth? When in my book, my Bible, I'll tell you that I'll put your sins as far away from you as the East is from the West, that your sins I'll remember no more. Now, since he's omniscient, obviously he has it in memory. What he's saying when he, when he says, I'll remember it no more is I'm not bringing it up again. And so the question is, why are you? And accept God's forgiveness. If you read back through some of those characters in the Bible and some of the things they did, <laughs> Adultery, murder, all kinds of terrible things. And God forgave them? That's the message that God can forgive you. Now, let's go to the second part of that, and then we got a couple of calls I'll take. Okay, so what if, Joe, it's not me? What if it's somebody that I love very dearly? Well, I hope you've heard what I've said in the last 35 minutes or so. And remember all the principles I've talked about, because I think you really do need to understand those things. And, and if you need to... Be sure you go over to Amazon.com and you buy that book, Getting Past Guilt. Now, there's some others who've written books by the same title. You understand you can't copyright a book title, by the way. <laughs> so there are others who have written books by the same title. Look for the one by Joe Beam. Or if you are on MarriageRadio.com listening to us there, you'll see a link right there that'll take you to it. The book's not very expensive. And it's an easy read, but it goes through all these things in much, much more detail. And if you are religious, particularly if you're a Christian, it also gives book, chapter, and verse that you can look at there. 
So make sure you understand all that. Now this, when it comes to forgiving the other person, when it, not just forgiving the other person, but helping the other person get past guilt. Let's put it that way. Here's the first thing you do. Do not downplay what they did. I don't care if it's something as simple as they say, wow, I feel guilty because I didn't call you last Thursday. Don't say, oh, that doesn't matter. It's no big deal. If people say they feel guilty about something, believe the fact that they do. And when we downplay and say, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, they tend to think, you don't understand what I'm feeling here. I feel badly about this. That's why I'm telling you I feel guilty. So whatever they've done, whether there's something as minor as they forgot to call you last Thursday or something as major as that they have cheated on you or they have done something to physically hurt you or to hurt somebody that you care about, whatever it is that they say they did, don't downplay it. Instead, you agree with them that what they did was wrong. Now, don't rub it in. That's not going to help. Don't say, you're right. You're committed adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. That's one of the big ones. You realize your soul's in jeopardy of hell. How could anybody ever do that? I mean, if you really loved me, could you have done that? If you cared about your kids, could you have done that? You said you were a person of faith. Obviously, you don't love God or you wouldn't have done that. Don't do any of that. None of that. But you can and should agree, yes. Yes, what you did was wrong. As a matter of fact, if you want to add a sentence or two, that's okay, but not much more like, yes, and you're right. It really did hurt me very deeply. Now, this is part of not downplaying it. It's acknowledging, yeah, I'm with you. What you did was a bad thing. And yes, it hurt me, or yes, it hurt our children or whatever. Just don't rub it in. Don't beat them up about it. There's no value in that. Now, after you've done that, after you've made it clear, I'm agreeing with you. What you did was a bad thing. And after you've made that, that clear, that's when you look them right in the eye if you have a chance to do it face-to-face, and I hope that you do. Otherwise, you do it the best you can in whatever way you can. But if you can look them in the eye, you look them right in the eye, and with calmness and compassion, you say, I forgive you. Now, you don't need to go into any long explanations like, well, because, you know, other people have treated me worse than that, and I forgave them. That's not necessary here. Or I forgive you, even though you don't deserve it. But, you know, I said I would live with you better or worse. And don't, no, don't, don't do any of that. You don't need to give any of those explanations at all. You can just say, I forgive you. It can be that simple. Those are three extremely powerful words. Often I won't say anything other than that after I've done it. I haven't downplayed what they did. And I agree with them. Yeah, what you did is terrible. It's bad. And then I look him in the eye and I say, I forgive you. Interestingly, I learned from my friend Jim Leake many years ago, this can work with people that didn't do anything to hurt you. I was telling Jim several years ago about something I did to hurt other people. And he looked me right in the eye and said, I forgive you. And it had an amazing impact on me emotionally, even though Jim didn't even know me when I did those things. I think the words, I forgive you, are as powerful, if not more powerful, than the words, I love you. And so you just say, I forgive you. Slowly, calmly, looking right in the eye, sincerely. Not something you're just tossing off. You're, you're saying it with some import, with some gravity. And if they react with, like, ah, you can't forgive me for this. I mean, it was terrible, I, blah, 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 blah. If they go into all that, you just listen until they sputter to a little bit of a stop. And you look them in the eye and say, yes, I've already agreed that what you did was wrong. But please believe me, forgive you. 
And if they go into it, how can you possibly do that? How can you forgive? If there's just feeling bad and rambling, don't answer. If, on the other hand, they actually calmly stop and look you in the eye and in a real conversational way say, how can you do that? Don't give too much detail there either, but you say things like this. Well, because I love you. Or because of the fact that I'm certainly not perfect myself. Or, and this is what Alice said to me. She said, it's because I know at heart you're a good man who did a bad thing. But I truly believe that in there is a good man. Don't do a lot of explanation. Just enough to let them know that you're serious. And then don't bring it up again. Even if you see them moping around and feeling depressed, don't walk up and say, are you still feeling guilty about that? You don't bring it up. Now, if they bring it up, you listen. For example, if you see them moping around, you might say, honey, what's the matter? What's wrong? He or she may give you some off-the-cuff answer. They may not answer at all, or they may say, well, I'm still feeling guilty about that. If they say, I'm still feeling guilty about that, now you change it from saying, I agree that what you did was wrong. If they say, I still feel guilty about that, you say, I understand. It takes a while. That's all you say. I understand it takes a while. Then you look them in the eye again, and you say, I forgive you. By the way, there is no limit to the number of times that you can say over a period of (laughs) days, weeks, months, or years, I forgive you. But what you're not wanting to do here is to have these long conversations where you're trying to pick their brains and find out why they did all the crappy stuff they did. You understand? Now, if they want to talk about why they did it, listen. And if normal questions come up, you can ask those questions. Just be careful just be careful that those questions don't appear to be an attack. But don't try to dig that stuff out of them. If you're trying to help them get past guilt, let them talk when they want to. But you don't bring it up again. And always, always in all those conversations, at the right time, you look them in the eye and say, I forgive you. Now, hopefully, hopefully with time, this will begin to get through to him or her. If not, then you may do something like, and I have some people do this, you might do something like, hey, uh, let's, let's work through Joe's book together about forgiveness. Joe wrote it trying to figure out how to feel forgiven after what he had done. Let's see if we can find some stuff in there that might be of value to us. And you just read it together and talk about it. If you prefer not to use my book, then you find some other resource that's similar to that. If indeed your spouse or whoever it is that you love needs to talk to a uh, a minister or a rabbi, a priest, whomever, then that's fine. I say, great, I'm, I'm happy. I'll, I'll drive you if you wish. And if you want me in there, I'll be in there. And if you don't, I won't. But you are constantly being that calm person that demonstrates, that demonstrates that you can forgive so that finally he or she will accept the fact that they did what they did, accept the fact that you have forgiven them, accept Forgiveness of their own within themselves, and this can take a little while to do, and hopefully wind up accepting the forgiveness of God. Now, there's a lot more I can say about it, but I've talked a long time. Let's go and take a call or two. We have area code 914. Hello, 914. You're on the Joe Beam Show. Hi, Joe. It's Tina. Tina? I don't know why I don't recognize your number. I can't believe that. Okay, I didn't even I'm recognize my number. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I did it that fast. I was sitting there going, wow, that must be me. <laughs> <laughs> now that is funny. I looked up here at my notes and there, 
I actually have written your number down on this side so I can watch for it, but I didn't look for uh, it tonight. I'm sorry. Oh, my so goodness. Tina, you're too much. You're too much. So, well, so for those that don't know, Tina is a friend. <laughs> uh, we got to meet each other, what, about a year and a half ago now, maybe coming up yeah. on two? How long has it been? Yeah, it's a, a year and a half ago, yeah. Yeah, and, time goes, time flies by, that's for sure, but I've learned so much, that's for sure, well, too. So I have, too. So for those that don't know, Tina, therefore, is a friend. She lives up in New York. I'm down here in Tennessee, but uh, we're still friends. I, what, what would you like to talk about tonight, Tina? Well, I just want to say first, I, I've been very eager about this show ever since I saw that you were writing about it uh, on the Save My Marriage pages. And uh, I have a couple of questions, though, because uh, this really hits home for me. For okay. how, how can you uh, – I believe that my husband has been in a guilt cage for a long time, and now he, in light of uh, – what's gone on uh, and since our separation, I believe he's being deceived. He's in the deceived way, uh, mm. part of the, the quadrant. How mm-hmm. long can you ignore guilt feelings until it just becomes too much? Is there, like, does it ever end? I think he was guilt-caged before I met him, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say, from past his past, and then now... Physically, right now, I think he's in the deceive quadrant. So I'm just asking, is there a way just to, can he, like, to me, it always seems like he's outrun these guilt feelings. Is that a possibility? It's possible. It's possible. But it's also possible, Tina, that rather than having outrun them, he has done things to cover them. So, for example, some of the things that he's done, like being involved, okay, uh, with somebody else, can be a way, actually, to keep from dealing with the feelings of guilt. It's like I had these negative emotions about me, even if he doesn't understand that those negative emotions are guilt. I had these negative emotions about me, and the way I deal with that is that I cover it with something else. So I can cover it with things like alcohol. I can cover it with things like drugs. I can. Some people cover it by working like crazy. I mean, they just work yeah. constantly to keep themselves from feeling it. Some people get involved with other people. Because when they're in those other situations, they don't feel so badly about themselves. And so while it's possible that he's outrun it, some of the things that he has done may be indicative of the fact that that part of what's been driving those things is his negative self-esteem, the way he feels about himself, and trying to cover that by doing something else. Do you think that's possible? Yes, I do. I mean, definitely do. The working, he doesn't do drugs, but he does Mm -hmm. drink. Uh, mm-hmm. And he does overwork, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. okay, well you hit the nail on the head as usual. So <laughs> I knew I knew you would have the answer. <laughs> I, I, I I don't I do not have all the answers, my friend. You know that. You know I'm a flawed human being. But I tell you what, I admire you. And and then for those listening who won't know, um, we have a special group called Save My Marriage. Uh, it's a closed group. You have to apply to actually get in it. But we have right at 4,000 people in it right now. Tina's in that as well as another group that we have. And Tina posted today about how that she was walking a dog and saw a skunk that was <laughs> sick. And you actually rescued a sick skunk. Is, did yeah. I read that correctly? Yeah, you did. That's, he had he had rabies. It was sad, uh, but uh, uh, you gotta you have to remove those guys before they cause further damage. So, and you try to do it as as quick and and painless as possible, and then you uh, humanely euthanize them as quick and painless as possible too. So, 
Well, and that's good. But the reason I'm telling that story in a program like this, where people are saying, what does that have to do with anything that you're talking about in a relationship program, is that this is the kind of person that Tina is, that she has compassion, she has courage, and, and one of the strongest people I've ever met. And I'm sure, Tina, like everybody else, you probably have days when you think you're not strong at all. But I think you're one of the strongest people on the planet, and I admire that so much in you. Thank you so much, Joe. And thank you for really making me so much uh, of a better person. That's for sure. Your whole group, I can't, uh, I can't, I feel like a parrot sometimes going, marriage helper, marriage helper. But <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I hope I one of my blessed. friends is listening tonight, too, because uh, he needs help, too, as well. Good. So, yeah. Well, as you, as you know, I'm blessed to work with a great team and blessed yeah. to get to know people like you, my friend, Tina. Thank blessed you, to know Joe. people like you. You take care, Thank my friend. You, you too. Okay. Have a great night. All right. So we're going to go from New York. New York. Um, I can't even talk tonight. Over to, I believe this is Wisconsin, 920. Hello, 920. Are you there? Yeah, Dr. Joe, this is Matthew. You actually know me under the Save My Marriage uh, course group as Cam. Okay. How And how can we help you this evening? Um, I believe my wife is locked in a lot of guilt. Um, mm-hmm. She's been harboring quite a bit of resentment over the years, and it kind of boiled over in March. Her drinking had gotten crazy that I didn't see her know about, and she was using it if she drank more than I'd noticed. And then... Mm-hmm. Late or early in March, ended up developing an emotional affair with an online friend. And then we had some things go better and some things go worse. And now she's moved out and we still talk and it's decent talk, but she's at the point where she just doesn't want anything to do with look at, even looking at trying to save the marriage. Just mm-hmm. doesn't want to make a decision now because she knows she's in a bad state. But it's like, right. I want to know, and I think I know the right thing to do, but it's like one of those, okay. Where do I go? Well, I, I understand. Matthew, let me make one point that you brought up that I should have said earlier that you reminded me of, and that's this. And, and so if you'll give me a second to do that. When people are guilt-caged, when they really feel a lot of guilt, often they will not do anything other than things that make them feel right about being guilty. I'm not saying that well. Let me try to say it a different way. Let me put it this way. When people feel that they're dirty, if you'll let me use that illustration for a minute, they don't mind getting mm-hmm. dirty or staying dirty. And so when a person feels like, okay, I'm doing wrong things, it makes it easier for them to do more wrong things or to stay in the wrong things. It's like, I'm no good. This is who I am. And so they resist doing anything about going back in the right direction. Okay. So that, mm-hmm. and, and so you, I should have meant that earlier, said that earlier, you helped me with that. Now, She's having any contact with you at all? Uh, yeah, we talk at least weekly. Um, right now, we're going to have dog exchange on Fridays. I'll pick it up, and we may have dinner. So there's still good conversation. It's just new. good. Um, and then good. Sunday, she's going to come here and possibly make dinner and have dinner with family. Good. And so in those conversations, what kind of things do you talk about? Um. We try to keep it light, but we have talked about issues. Um, the one thing that kind of concerned, and I, I need to, I don't say confront her about it, but um, the other week she kind of asked me, what if anything else will convince me that it would be okay to get a divorce because that's part of one of the things that happened. I ended up having a flooding, and 
threw a tantrum because I'm a child of divorce, so I just didn't handle that well, and that pushed things in a way. And the other one is um, she made mention that the day she knows I am coming over, she gets very anxious and wants to drink more. So in a way, she was blaming me for the drinking and and kind of for the affair. So I really have to make sure I let her know, no, it's not my fault. It was completely your choice. I, I got to stop taking blame for that. That's an issue I got to deal with. And the other one I was kind of thinking about with the workshop option, I don't want or agree to divorce, but I would be strongly tempted to say, hey, you're asking what it would take if you go first to the workshop. I will mm-hmm. not fight you on the divorce. If you choose to file, I wouldn't help her. But Right. I understand. Okay. Can I make a couple of suggestions, my friend? Yes. I think it's, it's perfectly normal to say, no, it's not my fault. You know, don't blame it on me. You made the choice, that kind of thing. That's perfectly normal. Yet at the same time, when you do that, my guess is that she doesn't continue to be real open after that. Is that right? It's sometimes it, yeah, it can be. Okay. So my suggestion is this, that, that, and I don't blame you for, for defending yourself. I really don't. But rather than doing that, you could probably accomplish more further than saying, Oh, wait a minute. You know, it's not my fault. You're the one making the choice to drink. If instead of doing that, you do something like this, when she says, okay, when I know you're coming over, I get antsy and I start drinking, is to respond very calmly, very calmly and say, you know, I'd really like to understand more about that. Can you explain more about how that feels? And then, and then whatever she says, you don't ask questions like, you know, you've got her under the third degree with the bright light. Those, not those kind of questions, but just general questions like, well, okay. What about my coming over? And that, I wouldn't start with that one, but what about my coming over makes you feel nervous? I wouldn't start with that because you'll get defensive. I'd start with, help me understand more about this feeling and when does it start and what does it feel like? And as, as she talks more and you do a lot of listening, then toward the end, you can say, and what do you think it is about my coming over that, that starts this? If you do that kind of conversation, and it takes a lot of strength to do it, my friend, but I, you can do it. If you have that kind of conversation, you may start getting to some real core issues. What I mean by that is she may finally start explaining things like, and I'm going to make stuff up now, Matthew, because I don't know the answer, like, because I know that what I'm doing is wrong. You might get that kind of answer. Or because of the fact that I do enjoy you being here, but I know what I'm doing is, is, is leading us to divorce. I mean, there's no telling what she'll say if you can make it safe enough for her to tell you that. Because as soon as you start defending yourself, which is human, as soon as you start defending yourself, she's going to stop being as open. But if rather than defending yourself, you just kind of push that off to the side and just keep asking questions and keep listening, then you have a good chance of getting her to start taking bricks off the wall. Um, Are you in our 10-week online course as well, Matthew? Yes, sir. Okay. So you know the concept then about taking bricks off the wall. Yeah. And so that's, I would suggest you try that. Now, if she pushes more for the divorce, that bar her. We've had a lot of couples bar her like that. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sign the thing if you decide to come to the workshop first. If you do that, a couple of suggestions about that. Number one, don't offer anything that you're not going to be willing to do when the time comes. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a good success rate with our workshop, but it's not 100%. Therefore, if you're going to offer to do something, 
Make sure it's something you can do without feeling bitter about it if you wind up having to do it. Okay. The second is, uh, the second thing is I would wait a while before doing it to see if you can start initiating more of the kind of conversations I'm talking about now where that you can kind of get to some deeper issues because you might get start actually turning things around a little bit with that. And then it would be easier to say, well, why don't we go to the workshop without having to barter at all? In other words, not giving up anything. But if you do, if you do barter, if you do decide to do that, my friend, again, please hear me well. Be, be, make sure it's something you're willing to give up and you're not going to feel bitter about later. I would love to have you guys there. I would love to get my chance to know you better, but also get a chance to talk to her and help her understand some things about herself. And if that chance ever comes, I will very much look forward to your being there. Okay. Yeah, I know I need to have patience. That's been one of my troubles. <laughs> okay, my friend. You you love her and you hurt. Hey, it's okay to be a human being, Matthew. It is. All right? Yep. Okay, my friend. You have a good evening. Okay, I got to come for – well, I've got – all of a sudden now – we get into our hour and the phones light up. <laughs> Let me see if I can get to another one or two. I'll try, but over time, we're going to go to area code 443. 443. I think that's, what is it, Baltimore? 443? Yes. Hi, Joe. Hi, how are you? Great. How are you doing? Uh, <laughs> Rocket, I've listened to these podcasts. And, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. I've been um, listening to these podcasts and I work on my pies the best I can. I work a lot of nights, and um, I've known my wife for 33 years. We've been married for 25. We're still living together in the same house, but in separate bedrooms, mainly Mm -hmm. because of just sleeping arrangements. Um, We have two children, and she says to me she doesn't love me, um, and we're not compatible anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of that we don't communicate. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping that we could learn to communicate again. It was funny, the, um, a few weeks ago, you had that whole conversation on how men think and how women think, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's so us. <laughs> um, but we signed a mediation agreement. I'm sorry, we have a mediation agreement in Maryland, uh, but I haven't signed it yet. And mm-hmm. I finally agreed to sign it if she does certain things, mm-hmm. one of which would be if she goes to the workshop. Uh-huh. But I'm just very, I'm very concerned that we're going to be one of the 25%. <laughs> and, and I know my wife well enough. She's like, we don't communicate. I just don't want to be married to you. But yet mm-hmm. this past weekend we went to get, um, um, we went to dinner and went, you know, to get uh, um, snow cones with the kids. Mm-hmm. So we still spend time together, just not any alone time. Gotcha. How, and, uh, how, how can you help me? Okay. Tell me, tell me again how long you've been married. 25 years, and we've been together for 33. I met him when we were 15 and 16, and I'm wow. going to be 50. We've been together our whole life. Okay. And I, and, I can't ever no. And no. how old are the kids? 13 and 17, and the older one is going off to college in September. And is your wife involved with anyone else? No, I, okay. I, I, no, I, I, there's no way she is. Okay, good. And that's good. That's good. Okay. I, by the way, uh, the vast majority of the people that come to the workshop think they're going to be one of the 25%. 
So that's that's a pretty normal thing. And obviously, uh, not all of them are the 25% because because only 25% are the 25%. So the kind of thing you're discussing, if it's primarily communication and primarily the fact that you've drifted apart, then uh, the, the weekend we do can be extremely helpful for that. Because what we do uh, is on the first day, we start talking about things not to do when you're communicating with each other. Now, we don't do that the first morning, but we start doing that the first afternoon and saying, okay, here's some things you need to stop doing. And it's really quite revelatory to people. Um, nearly everybody who comes is actually, after we finish that section, goes, I had no idea that was that harmful. Then we later start talking about how to start really opening up and sharing and understanding each other. So the kind of things you're talking about are some things we address pretty directly in the workshop. And have seen a lot of success with people in the situation that you're describing. Now, unfortunately, I cannot guarantee that it's going to work, as you understand. But if, if, if in a mediation you're agreeing to several things, if she agrees to come to the workshop, I think that's a really good thing to put in there. And I would love to have a chance to try to help you guys work this thing out. I mean, you've been together most of your lives, right? That's it. And, and I can't ever imagine my life without her and I know that it, my life will be better with her not mm-hmm. in the current situation but I, right. you know I, I don't want to start over and she right. just wants her space well I understand that and we actually in the workshop can show you how to give her her space without you guys causing any more problems to the marriage in other words she doesn't have to move out to get some space well, you can actually have a good relationship Mm-hmm. We've already agreed to sell the house because, again, one child is going to college, and we don't we have a big house, and we don't need it. So, as far okay. as we're gonna, we would sell the house and and live in different places because we just split the money. Yeah. So when would that happen? We'll probably list it in the next thirty days. I wanted okay. to try and get it done before the another new school district. I understand. And if if she were to come to the workshop. Uh, with you, how soon might that be? Uh, I'd like to get her there in the August one. Well, that would be good. August, that would be really good. August fourteenth is our would be our thirty four years of our anniversary of our first date. <laughs> wow! Wow! Crazy as that is. That's amazing. Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking. If I agree to if I agree to the mediation, she's got to agree to go to the, to the August fourteenth. Is that 14, 15, 16? Is that it? I, yeah. I don't have the dates in yeah. front of me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's the workshop yeah. I do just I, right after that workshop. I fly to Beijing to lecture to uh, counselors and therapists and psychology professors in China, actually, right immediately on the heels of that workshop. But <laughs> I, uh, I would love, I'd love for you guys to come. I hope that works out where that she does. I really believe we can help you with this. I can't promise it. But I really believe we can help you with this, and I'd love to be able to help you do that before you actually sell the house so that you can make some different decisions what to do about that money, you know? But it's, it's up to you and her. Yeah. I just would love to have you there. Okay. The, 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 thank you. The last, the last one thing real quick is um, she's in that the four horsemen. She's in uh-huh. the contempt stage. She's yeah, totally well, like, okay. Yeah. Well, that's not unusual. I mean, that's not unusual, but in the workshop, we often help people stop using the horseman no matter what. 
Okay. And we go into a lot of better explanation of it there and how it works and those kinds of things. And I'm sorry that she's in that stage right now. I'm sure that's really bad for you, but it's also bad for her. Yep. But I, I believe we can help. I do believe we can help you with that. I can't promise it, but I do believe we can. Oh, anything? Um, how can I? Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. What's that? I was going to ask you if anything else I can help I, you with I, tonight. Hmm? Well, if there's any other suggestions, real quick, and what to do in the meantime. Well, I tried to get onto the closed Facebook page, but I didn't get any response. I'll call the office. But but anything that you can say just in the meantime, real quick, to help me. And, you know, whatever, any just advice. Okay, so you're you're, all right. So you're not part of our 10 week online course then. Not not yet. Okay, And and you haven't been in our Save My Marriage group either yet is what you're saying. Correct. Okay. yeah. If you if you call the office or send an email, you can send an email to ask Joe. That's A-S-K-J-O-E. Ask Joe at marriagehelper.com. And tell them that you're having trouble getting into that group, and they'll look in to see what's happening there. All right. And in the meantime, in the meantime, meantime, real quick, be calm, be gentle. Okay. Those are the things to do. Don't react. Don't react negatively. Just be as calm and gentle as you can. And and if she, when she's contemptuous, don't defend yourself. Don't react. Just understand that right now you're kind of in a bad place, and try not to react in any way negative to that at all, if you possibly can. And tell her I forgive her. <laughs> yep. Okay. And and right. you may want to consider it, particularly if she doesn't agree immediately to come to the to the uh, workshop. You may want to look into the ten week course. Here's the cool thing about the ten week course: if you buy the ten week course and then you come to the workshop, you actually can deduct the full price of the ten week course off of the workshop. Yeah. In other, words, in other words, you can. In other words, it's a way to get the ten week course free. Is if you you get it gotcha. first. And if you decide to come to the workshop, it's deducted from the price of the workshop. And the way to find out about the 10-week course is you go to marriagehelper.com, marriagehelp, E-R, marriagehelper.com, slash save my marriage, all one long word, save my marriage. And there you can see about the 10-week course. And then if you do come, like I said, if you do then come to the workshop, you can deduct all of that, which means you get the 10-week course for free, basically. And uh, I, I suggest that you look into that if she doesn't come to decide agreed to come immediately i would suggest strongly you try the 10-week course because we give a lot of information in there plus on thursday nights we do a coaching call for people in that course okay is it also at nine o'clock no it's at eight o'clock it's eight o'clock okay okay and that's on thursday nights but you also have a lot of videos and audios and all kinds of other things in that course and it's there's a lot of stuff there that i think you'll find valuable okay thank you very much all right, you have a good evening. I'm going to work in one more call. I believe this one's in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we'll get this one before we close tonight. I think this is Chattanooga, area code 423. Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, am I right? Is it Chattanooga? It's Morristown. Okay, how can I help you tonight? Well, I just wanted to say my uh, my name is Moses, and uh, my wife left me two weeks ago. And uh, we've been having problems for the last couple of years. And Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's been kind of my fault that I've let my uh, myself draw close away from her Mm -hmm. and um, try to control her, try to do everything in the house, take control of finances and everything. And pretty much, 
I took out my anger towards her instead of talking to her and opening mm-hmm. up to her. Mm-hmm. And um, when she left me, she told me she didn't love me anymore and she was not coming back and all. But at the mm-hmm. same time, she's letting me talk to her. She's actually planted dates for us to actually go out. She said she wanted Good. to be friends with me because we've been together for seven years. We've been married mm-hmm. for four. Mm-hmm. And all I've wanted to do is try to work this and fix this with her. I have mentioned to her about the workshop, and I have mm-hmm. mentioned her about getting counseling and everything. But she's mm-hmm. very, very skeptical because she's afraid that she could get hurt more than what it is now that she is. Right. But I, I wanted to tell her a long time ago, it's been about two months that I wanted to tell her that I wanted to get the help for us. I've been right. looking into this for a long while. I've been actually listening to a lot of your uh, your radio shows. And today, mm-hmm. this morning, I was listening to the one especially about controlling, mm-hmm. you know, and you had the far and the pies, and I was looked at it, and I was like, oh, my Lord, that is me. Oh, that wow. is me and the opposite of what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to exactly tell her that, hey, this is a benefit for us. It has been a benefit for me, too, and for you, too. And if we were to go our separate ways, I wanted to at least give it at least one more try to see where I go, where we go with this, because I know she still loves me. I know I love her with all my heart. My daughter loves her with all her heart, and it's been very, very hard. I'm I'm sure it has. I'm so sorry, Moses, for the pain. When people have the situation, and by the way, um, that's the second uh, most common problem that we have come to the workshop. The first is, as you might imagine, infidelity. The second is where one spouse feels controlled by the other. And so in our workshop, we talk a lot about it because it's, it's the number two issue bringing people there. Now you heard that podcast about that. Did you, uh, did you, did it get, did we have a link there for you to get the ebook about control on that podcast? Uh, I didn't, I didn't remember because it, it was so early in the morning. I'm actually been okay. going to sleep to your podcast. I'm uh, not podcast, the radio <laughs> shows and waking up to it all night long. Seriously, this is how serious I really want help for us. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I, 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 I didn't, re- I, I didn't mean to laugh saying that your problem. It's just that I'm thinking uh, my radio show puts you to sleep. Uh, that's, that's what I was thinking. I'm sorry, my friend. I put a lot no, of, no, no, you're fine. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, that's what I asked you to help. Okay, a couple, couple of things I suggest, Moses. Number one, email us at askjoe, that's A-S-K-J-O-E, askjoe at marriagehelper.com, that's marriagehelper, marriagehelper.com, and say that you want the ebook about control, and they'll send you that. Secondly, um, in a situation such as you're describing, two things have to happen to make those marriages work out. The first is that because you're the person who's been controlling, the first is that you have to get it. What I mean by that is, is to truly understand what you're doing and how you're doing it. That's the first step. But it sounds like you're working on that pretty intently right now. The second step is that then she will have to take a risk. And that's what she's telling you right now. I don't know that I want to take the risk. I'm afraid it's going to hurt me more. So in the workshop, if she were to come to the workshop, these are the kinds of things you can assure her. And by the way, if you want to listen to this again, you can listen to it at marriageradio.com for the next week. Or you can go to iTunes and subscribe free to Marriage Radio with Joe Beam. I'm sure you already know how to do that. But yes, yeah, this I is have what it this, on. The, okay. So this is what you can tell her 
Um, number one, we protect everybody in the workshop, meaning that we make it a safe place for everybody while they're there. Totally safe. Number two, and to the point that even if, even if a spouse started to say something to or about his or her spouse, we gently step in and stop them. You know, this is a place that's safe for everybody. Nothing negative here at all. The second thing is we will explain a whole lot about control, even more than you heard on the podcast and, and how to stop that. Not only you getting it so that you don't do it, but the things that she can do that would make it less of a risk for her to try it again. And, and so we deal a great deal with this in the workshop, totally safe for her in every shape, fashion, or form. Uh, we'll be extremely understanding. We see this kind of situation all the time. But here's the good news, Moses. Based on what I'm hearing from you, the fact that you are aware of this, the fact that you're already beginning to try to learn how to understand yourself and not do this, it's telling me that there's great hope to making this into a really good marriage. Because the most important step is always the person who's been doing the controlling to get it. And you're working on that already. Man, that's the biggest, that's the biggest step. Good for you, young man. And so if, if she'd be willing to come to the workshop, we can guarantee that'll be safe for her. And that we can teach both of you a lot of good things so that if you choose, and, and we say that so she doesn't feel pressured, you understand, that if you choose to put the marriage back together, it can be a safe place for her where she doesn't feel controlled. And I think one of the biggest things that's actually that I can tell that she's still thinking about it. And I know she's hurt is it's my daughter. I mean, it's not, I didn't have my daughter with her, but she's been there for my child since she's been a year and a half. And I don't think she wants to let go of that either. And Good. I just, I just need to show her that, Hey, we have our faults, but, I'm going to work on this. Good. Now, as you do it, be careful not to push too hard or it'll come across as control. So be very, very calm, very gentle, very understanding. But the, but the story you're telling me here, what I'm hearing, Moses, gives me hope. I think this one sounds to me like this one's highly fixable. I'd love to get a shot at helping. I really would. I, I think I just feel good about your future if, if you can get together and work this thing out. I really do. And I'm trying to try to go for the August uh, workshop. Um, Good. I'm just trying to make sure that I have the finances to be able to do it. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't mention it to her. I didn't mention where from. I just asked her if she was open to the idea for marriage help. And mm -hmm. then she was afraid to say, hey, is it going to cost a lot of money? And I was like, would it matter if it did? And she was like, well, one of the things we argued was that we didn't have money and we, our finances were screwed up, mm -hmm. I said, well, if it does, it'll be worth every penny. And she well, didn't respond to anything else. I got you. I understand. Have you actually talked to uh, our guy on the phone about this? I talked to um, John, I think it was. Johnny. Uh-huh. Right, Johnny. Earlier today, yeah. Okay. And, well, uh, if Johnny explained him. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's the guy that you would work through. And, and Johnny can be very helpful if he understands everything that's going on. Okay. Yes. I don't mean in counseling. I, I don't mean trying to help you with the problem. I mean, trying to figure out, how to, no, no. you know, how to make it work financially and those kinds of things. He can be good at helping right. you figure that out. Yeah. And she mentioned about trying to do marriage counseling. You know, she said, mm -hmm. if it's, you know, I'd rather do marriage counseling here in town, you know, since mm -hmm. it's not going to cost a lot of money, mm -hmm. but I don't really trust it around where I live at. 
because this this town and the area surrounding areas don't very have high rates of actual health where I live at. Yeah, that's unfortunate. You know, a, a good marriage counselor is worth his or her weight in gold. The ones that are not very good do a whole lot more harm than good. Now, we we like working with marriage counselors who are good. We really do. We 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 are very afraid of the others. Uh, I would love for you to guys come to the workshop. The very thing you're talking about is something we address directly. I really believe we can be of help. But you you do whatever is best for you, young man. I'm not trying to talk you into anything. But if we get a chance to help you, I would like I would surely look forward to that possibility. Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. All right, Moses, you take care of yourself, young man. I, I just have a good feeling about your potential future here. I really do. Okay? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And I've gone over time for tonight. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday night.